Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, if everything's a Green New Deal, is anything a Green New Deal? If you are investing in community infrastructure, giving people public transportation, investing in public housing, I don't know if people really care what it's called. And then, call it another kind of solution, 8,900 pounds of sticky rice cake. In 2007, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman called for a radical, big government public works project he termed the Green New Deal. His article was called A Warning from the Garden, the warning being that the daffodils in D.C. were blooming in January. Twelve years later, the warnings are less bucolic. Deadly forest fires, devastating droughts, superstorm upon superstorm, and a climate report by the UN that says we've got 11 years to fix this shit or we're going to be slow marching into the ocean as Nellie's hot in here plays. All this has progressive and progressive-ish politicians reviving Friedman's call for a Green New Deal. But what does that actually mean? Kate Aronoff, who covers the environment for The Intercept, is here to help us make sense of it all. Thanks for coming, Kate. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot of different politicians calling for a Green New Deal. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is Mm -hmm. sort of the most famous of them, but Cuomo also mentioned in his state of the state that we're going to do a Green New Deal here in New York State and a litany of candidates for the upcoming elections, presidential elections, are also saying that they support some sort of Green New Deal and will incorporate that into their platform. So what does it actually mean if everybody is behind a Green New Deal? So it's a little open right now. Um, And the history of it, uh, as you mentioned, sort of starts with Tom Friedman kind of mentioning it in a a column. But there have been people who have put out fairly detailed policy proposals about what a Green New Deal looks like. But that idea is really coming uh, into the fold now. And so the sort of most basic thing it means, and again, it is very open. Um, it is not to its credit been entirely defined what it what it means yet. I think it's an open sort of field for people to do it. But what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says in her um, resolution calling to create a select committee on a Green New Deal, um, which that committee didn't get created in Congress, but is to transition the United States to 100% renewable energy by 2035. So to get off of fossil fuels as quickly as we possibly can. And that's a very, very ambitious target. Energy wonks will sort of uh, say it's too ambitious. And along with that, do things like create a federal job guarantee to create sort of massive uh, economic programs to do the work that we need to do to really figure out this problem. I mean, maybe we need some of that ambition and some of that vision. I think Ocasio-Cortez has mentioned that This could be our generation's civil rights movement, our moonshot, and that we haven't really seen that sort of ambitious approach to a world problem from any of our elected leaders. Yeah. And what's kind of remarkable about the Green New Deal proposal is that it really is in the sort of American political scene and arguably in many parts of the world, the only thing that's really meeting the scale of the problem. The UN wasn't um, making it up when they said that we have about 12 years to start stripping fossil fuels from our economy. It wasn't released on April Fool's Day. Right. So, you know, this is a massive problem. And I think we don't really have 
lot of precedence for understanding uh, the scale of change that is required to do this. I mean, fossil fuels are sort of at the core of our economy. And so in order to make that not the case and make sure that, you know, people aren't left out of that transition, it'll take a lot of work. And sort of the closest thing we have and why I think the Green New Deal framing has caught on is the, the New Deal itself. And, you know, another thing that politicians who are backing this make reference to um, is the mobilization around World War II. Um, and so that is the sort of scale of change that we're talking about that, that will be needed to do this. And that, that even sort of understates a little bit. I think it's, you know, if you were to combine the New Deal mobilization, uh, the World War II mobilization, and, and, you know, throw some other things in there, we might start to get at the scale. But um, it is just sort of a massive, massive problem, and we need to devote a lot of resources to it. The two things that you mentioned, the New Deal and the World War II mobilization, one thing that they had in common was FDR, uh, who, you know, was an incredibly powerful president. And the voters again and again returned to him the type of power to push these policies through despite objections by political opponents. In this divided political moment, do you think that we will see government coming together to push an ambitious policy proposal like the Green New Deal forward? I think it'll be a, a lot of a lot of work. It's an uphill battle for sure. But I think, you know, I think we can really see that. I mean, we already see politicians who are backing this. Practically every 2020 candidate on the Democratic side has come out for it. And so I think to draw the historical analogy out a little bit more, um, FDR, you know, didn't do this from the goodness of his heart. He did this because he was facing massive pressure from below. I mean, to read um, sort of transcripts of what was happening in Congress um, in the early days of the of the Depression um, is, is wild. I mean, people are screaming on the, on the floor. There was a real sort of palpable threat of, you know, revolution as they, as they talked about it. And so I think groups like the Sunrise Movement, um, like Justice Democrats, have really been sort of pushing that forward. And so so I think both of those things working together can really help us get the momentum needed to do it. And I think we're already seeing that momentum kind of take off. So a lot of candidates, as you mentioned, Democratic candidates mm -hmm. for 2020 have come out at least broadly supporting the concept of a Green New Deal. But have we seen any centrist, Republican, independent candidates um, also say that they would consider some of these proposals? Is anybody coming forward and saying, actually, hey, you know, like, I'm a fiscal conservative, and this seems to make a lot of sense in terms of uh, preventing an economic slide into oblivion as climate change takes down our economy? Not that I know of. I mean, I think Damn. the... <laughs> I mean, to, well, that's to say, I mean, I think the Republicans so far have, you know, been pretty united against a Green New Deal or any climate policy um, with some very like small exceptions. Um, but, you know, if you look at someone like Kristen Gillibrand, who spent the early part of her career as kind of a blue dog Democrat, and in the last couple of years, I think especially since 2016, has been moved to the left, just kind of reading sort of where the energy in the party is. Um, I think that's the sort of change that we're, we're looking at is that, you know, politicians who used to, you know, have a very different sort of orientation toward the economy and toward even climate issues um, are sort of coming along because they see it's popular and they see that it's getting attention. Tom Friedman makes this argument about how we really need to make a broader appeal um, and to get conservatives in red states on board with us. And he says, you know, the term green has a sort of like hippy dippy connotation and we need to rebrand it. And we need to say that, you know, the majority of the states, for example, that would benefit from wind power are red states, Montana and Texas and so on. And so that if we can make a hard economic appeal to people, to people who maybe have been left behind, uh, people who have manufacturing experience and saying this is actually an economic opportunity that will get broad support. 
Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do we see any any politicians actively trying to do that? I mean, I think if you do what a Green New Deal is setting out to do, according to the folks who have been pushing it the hardest, so if you create a federal job guarantee, give a job to everyone who wants one, if you are investing in community infrastructure, giving people public transportation, investing in public housing, I don't know if people really care what it's called. You know, I think if people are, are uh, seeing a sort of opportunity for their communities to improve, for their lives to improve, um, I don't, I don't know if the sort of framing question is really, um, is really the, the the important one. I think there has been this sort of persistent myth, um, and I do think it's a myth in sort of climate politics to prioritize bringing a small number of Republicans on board. And so we saw we we have an example of what this looked like in 2009 and 2010 with cap and trade and the Waxman Markey bill and that you had this legislation which was I think flawed from you know arguably from the beginning but just got watered down endlessly to accommodate Republican and, and sort of establishment Democratic concerns and it didn't pass. So we know we know the strategy doesn't work. And so why not sort of let progressives, let folks who are really capturing the energy of the party drive this conversation forward? And I think, you know, the fact that we're even talking about a Green New Deal is is evidence that that can work. Mm -hmm. um, you wrote a piece for The Intercept and you start out by painting this sort of utopian vision of a frankly quite socialist society <laughs> where there's pay time off and you know, everybody has a free education if they want it. And, uh, you know, our economy is flourishing and people have the opportunity to work if they want to. Mm -hmm. So this gets at the idea of this federal employment guarantee that Ocasio-Cortez um, has proposed as well. Can you talk to me about how that works and why that's tied into the rest of the environmental stuff in the Green New Deal? Yeah, absolutely. And a federal job guarantee, it's interesting because people have talked about it as sort of an add-on to um, this program, but it's really, I think, a, a pretty critical part of it. And so if you look at kind of what jobs are available to a lot of people today, um, it's jobs at places like Walmart, which is the largest employer in 22 states. And so what does Walmart do? Walmart ships uh, massive amounts of cheaply made things under made under horrible labor conditions abroad and brings them to the U.S. and sells them. And so that's a pretty big carbon footprint, right? And so if we are you know, thinking about what a low-carbon society actually looks like, um, part of that involves giving people options which are not working at Walmart, which are not working at McDonald's and, and making sort of you know, wages that are far, far too low, but instead offering people a living wage, a family-sustaining wage, um, to do work that improves their communities. And so I think the role of a federal job guarantee is in incentivizing people out of these sort of carbon-intensive supply chains and into work that is actually, you know, making a meaningful difference in the place that they live and that simply just isn't carbon-intensive, right? Like, we, we need to transition not just sort of coal miners and people who are involved in the extractive sector into this new economy, but everyone. We need to give everyone a sort of quality of life that's, you know, arguably better than the one they have now. And you mentioned in your article that this has already been done. This isn't a crazy proposal. Spain shut their last coal mine mm -hmm. and invested a relatively small amount of money uh, into training all of the coal miners to do something else. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people wonder, how do we fund this? Like the idea of having people put to work 
you know, doing jobs restoring wetlands for, you know, $17 an hour sounds great, but where mm-hmm. does the money come from? Does this come from a 70% tax on the rich like AOC has proposed or what are what are funding sources? Sure, yeah, and I think it's it's interesting that this is such has become such a big part of the conversation because when we think about other times when the United States government has created a national priority, right? Think about World War II. We decided that it was important to fight the Nazis uh, and the Axis forces, and we did it. You know, when we go to war, we never talk about where will the money come from, how much will we raise taxes on the rich. You know, we just do it because we know it's important. And, and this is, you know, no less existential threat than World War II. And so I think that is the sort of frame we should be approaching this with. That said, we spend a whole lot of money keeping the fossil fuel industry afloat as is. We spend about $20 billion a year in the United States alone um, on subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. So what would it look like to use that money for something else? What if you took all the money we give to corporate executives at ExxonMobil and at Chevron and invested that actually in helping communities who have historically depended on coal mining transition to something else? You know, that's not sort of hard math to do. And I think we can make the money available. There's no shortage of money available in the United States to fund this. Um, But there are also sort of obvious things that we shouldn't be doing and shouldn't be funding that, you know, that money can be used more effectively. Talk to me about some of the lessons we can learn from some of the environmental planks in Obama's bailout plan. Mm -hmm. I think all anyone ever remembers is Solyndra, which of course was the solar panel company that was disgraced and, and people held up as the worst that could happen when you when you use taxpayer money to fund private enterprise. So talk to me a little bit about about maybe some of the lessons that we can take away, uh, whether that's optics or whether that's like very practical lessons about how you fund R&D. Yeah, I think that there are huge lessons learned from from the stimulus program, right? And that you do have these sort of like massive uh, pieces of basically industrial policy, which isn't something we think about a lot in the U.S. It doesn't sound that sexy. No, it doesn't sound that sexy. And and I think that was actually one of the big flaws of the stimulus was that um, it wasn't sexy. And sort of all of these, frankly, pretty impressive funding moves that happened for clean energy um, happened largely under the radar. And so it was, you know, done very quietly. And so why, you know, why was that? I think for um, sort of political reasons, they didn't want to sort of draw attention to the fact that the administration was funding clean energy, maybe. It's a a really mixed sort of technocratic bag of things. Um, But I think elements of that sort of, you know, investing in R&D, investing in companies that are actually doing the things that we want is something that is absolutely part of a Green New Deal. And I think if you, you know, the folks that I've talked to in reporting um, about that are sort of excited to uh, have elements of what, what the stimulus package was as part of the Green New Deal and acknowledge that, you know, that program didn't go nearly far enough. And so the problem wasn't obviously that we funded Solyndra, right? The problem was that we didn't fund uh, many more things um, that that could have succeeded. You mentioned VC and another proposal has been that VC money only comes in at a certain point Mm -hmm. when the risk is has been mitigated and that perhaps we should um, through industrial policy be funding things that are a little bit earlier stages in order then to entice private funders to come in what's the thinking about around that and is anybody talking about that in their vision of a green new deal yeah yeah so actually um, one of the economists to the folks who are sort of doing the thinking on the green new deal have been talking to is Mariana Mazzucato who does um, work looking at sort of the state's role in driving innovation. And so, you know, if you think about something like the iPhone, right, the research for all of the components in the iPhone, the camera, 
touchscreens, all that stuff was done through publicly funded research. And so what Apple actually did was come along and put it together. They put together all these different parts that have been made in you know, things like DARPA and ARPA um, and, and made them part of the same product. And so I think that's the sort of um, thinking and, and way we can sort of approach innovation that is, is you know, very much in line with the Green New Deal and that we can say, look, you know, if you're a company and you are actually, you know, genuinely interested in doing something which is meeting this great societal need, um, great. I mean, I think there's there's ways that the state can support that um, and sort of, you know, set a goal and say, look, if there are people who are willing to meet this goal, we'll support them to do that rather than having, you know, just handing money to, to corporations and expecting and hoping that they'll do something good. Um, actually, you know, setting that goal from the outset um, and making that, making that clear. And I think, you know, on clean energy, for instance, there's tons of innovation that's needed. Um, and I think the way to do that, you know, is not to just sort of uh, hope that that Google or whoever um, will, will, or Tesla, for you know, maybe, um, will do that themselves, but actually to play a pretty strong, strong role in, in sort of figuring out what, what it is we need. It seems to me that the tenor around a lot of this discussion has changed lately, um, and that environmentalism is no longer far left green party uh, topics of debate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is because I feel like the youth are coming forward and saying, wait, no, like 11 years is like when I'm supposed to be in the prime of my in the prime of my life. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, under 30, and she's, you know, spearheading this push in the House of Reps Mm -hmm. Um, and the Sunrise Movement, which is a huge grassroots movement by recent college graduates. What do you see among the young people who are sort of mobilizing behind this? And how do you think it's different from what we've seen in the past? Does it have a greater chance of success? Yeah, I mean, I I hope so, certainly. Um, So I think what we're seeing is people really just looking at what the problem actually means. So the IPCC report, again, sort of lays it out very clearly. We need to transition the economy off of fossil fuels as soon as we possibly can. And so I think uh, where the energy for the Green New Deal comes from is looking at the sort of landscape of policy proposals, things like, you know, a sort of very modest carbon tax and saying this seems just out of step with what we actually need in order to save our skins. I mean, it's a very sort of like looming material issue for a lot of people, especially young people. And, you know, there are folks all over the world who are already feeling the impacts of climate change, who have been making, you know, similar demands for the U.S. to do something on climate for years and years. Um, and so I think it's just a, a more realistic approach to the problem and, and, and an understanding on a political side that we need elected officials in office who can, who can do this. And I think that's something interesting about Sunrise, too, is that they're playing the sort of inside out outside game and that they want to get people elected um, to office who will push these things forward um, and they want to pressure them and support them once they're there um, to, to carry those things out. So you painted this utopic vision in your article, but maybe you can do the opposite and tell me what happens if we fail in this. What does it look like? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's not really a good way to, to like sugarcoat it, right? Hundreds of millions of people will die. If, if we do nothing. I mean, people already are dying. Um, we will see the largest mass migration in human history um, as a result of climate change, arguably, you know, in, which is a scary thing to consider, considering the rise of the far right um, and kind of what 
is, is awaiting folks when they when they reach shores of you know right wing governments. Um, we will see hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. I mean, the U.S. is the second most vulnerable country to climate impacts of anywhere else on Earth, which is kind of a surprising fact, That's right? Very surprising. I would have said that there would have been like you know at least a dozen island nations that would come before the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, in terms of risk, you know, the U.S. Um, will face massive, massive risks. I mean, there are island nations who will be inundated with water um, and, and large parts of the earth will be just unlivable. But, you know, I think part of what um, is important to talk about, right, is that the U.S. itself faces enormous risks as well. And so this isn't sort of a problem that is happening elsewhere. Certainly, you know, residents of New Orleans um, can attest to that. Folks who have lived through the wildfires in California see climate change in their backyards, right? Like this is a problem that's here and, you know, we will see it get much, much worse. And so, you know, if you can imagine how horrific the fires were in California this year, um, how horrific the damage from Hurricane Maria was in Puerto Rico, that will become a much more regular part of life if we don't do anything more. And as far as the Green New Deal and getting legislation crafted and passed through, what should we keep our eye on next? What do you think is the exciting thing to watch? Yeah, so I think there's going to be uh, an, an interesting conversation about this in the 2020 election. Congress is probably not going to pass a Green New Deal um, in the next two years through 2020. And so um, I think something which will start to happen is that different candidates who have come out in support of a Green New Deal at the behest of movements will really start to define what that looks like for them. And so I think we will have, you know, Kristen Gillibrand's Green New Deal. We'll have, you know, potentially Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal, Elizabeth Warren's Green New Deal. And so I I think, you know, looking to see what people are talking about um, when they when they do this, I think we'll, we'll start to refine the conversation a bit more than it has been. Um, and climate justice organizations, sort of youth movements will start to contest over what that means. And I think, you know, hopefully by 2020, we have a much clearer picture of what a Green New Deal, what operationalizing a Green New Deal will look like, and so that we can get to work as soon as possible after, after we hopefully have a new president and a new Congress. Knock on wood. Knock on all the wood. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Moi Japadam. Som Swapum, Garo Marisol, Mopai Aikate Kambi Publuk, Guinness Vodiko. Franklin D. Roosevelt may have promised a new deal for the American people, but it takes a true visionary to promise an 8,900-pound sticky rice cake. That's exactly what the autocratic leader of Cambodia, Prime Minister Hun Sen, did in 2015. And he delivered that and so much more. Cambodia is breaking absurd world records at breakneck speed. In addition to the rice and pork colossus, as Julia Wallace calls it in the New York Times, there was the world's longest scarf. The scarf, called a krama in local Khmer language, was 88 centimeters and almost 1,150 meters long. The world's longest dragon boat and the world's largest group Madison dance. Guinness Vodiko! If, like me, you didn't know what Madison dancing is, it's what they do in the cafe scene in Band of Outsiders. Line dancing, not just for white people anymore. Why is Cambodia's New Deal seemingly centered on Guinness World Records rather than public policy? It's all part of Hun Sen's plan to curry favor with Cambodia's youth. 
two-thirds of the country's population is under 30, which means that Hun Sen, who has been in office since 1985, is the only prime minister they've ever known. And many of them threw their support behind an opposition candidate in 2013. And so Hun Sen, with his history of tossing human rights activists in jail and stifling the free press, cast about for something that would distract Cambodia's youth while also winning their devotion. He needed to promise an avocado toast in every pot, if you will. Enter the 8,900-pound sticky rice cake, a scarf that's three-quarters of a mile long, or a dragon boat that spans 286 feet. Pay no attention to the dissident behind the curtain who happens to be in solitary confinement. Distract and direct attention to a big national pride project, even if it will do nothing to provide jobs, security, or improve standard of living, or protect against an existential threat. This is a beloved tool in the authoritarian's box. Think of a certain wall along a certain southern border. I wonder what Melania will wear to the ribbon cutting. Big thinking is hard to come by these days in government. It's politically risky, and you often don't start seeing results until long after the next election cycle. The New Deal, Obamacare, the Civil Rights Acts. These acts of grand ambition required visionaries and politicians willing to stick their necks out for progress. But these days, in the absence of big thinking, let's just have big things. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back on Monday talking to the New York Times New York Today reporter Ozzy Pybara about empty storefronts, bodega awning woes, and single-use plastic bags, and an installment of 112BK Punditry with Nick Rizzo. Hope you can join us. So my name is Shada, and I'm the representative from Guinness World Records. And today I am here in Cambodia, CM Rep, to witness the record attempt for the largest medicine dance. The dance must be choreographed and synchronized. Freestanding is not permitted. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.